Welcome to The Sugar Science. I'm your host, Monica Wesley, and we are really excited to talk to V. Loom today. I'm going to introduce you to the three masterminds behind it, Alexandra Kitching, Alex Spark, and Dr. Stephen Lee. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. I'd like to just briefly talk about what prompted sort of the two Alexes to create VLoom and what is VLoom? What is it? Would like cool. So I guess maybe we could start with the story. Steve, maybe you can kick it off and then... Yeah, <laughs> yeah certainly. So, so I'm, um, uh, I'm an academic. I'm a physical chemist uh, and uh, I run a lab at the University of Cambridge in the chemistry department there. And as part of our research that we do, one of the things, uh, one of the events that we put on is a public outreach event that was done at the Science Museum in London. Um, and part of that, we were kind of showcasing uh, the technology and the um, research that we do in our labs, developing new um, biophysical methods to address biological problems um, through the use of uh, advanced optical imaging tools. So, so put simply, we build microscopes in our lab. And we were doing a, a public uh, engagement event uh, when we encountered um, a, a variety of people that came up to, to see an exhibition that we were putting on at the time called How Can a Gin and Tonic Save Your Life? And, uh, <laughs> and we ended up in, interacting with uh, both Alex and Alex because of that event. And they said, this is a fantastic technology. It's really exciting. And you guys are terrible at um, visualizing it. And we said, we absolutely <laughs> agree. And uh, two years later, also, uh, um, uh, our software was published in um, to help other researchers do this. Uh, was published uh, recently, a few weeks ago, in Nature Methods. So that's kind of the background of how we got there. Maybe I'll leave it to, to Alex and Alex to explain actually what it is and what it does. That sounds great. Cool. Who would like? Which Alex wants to go first? Um, well, I'll, I'll I'll hit it off, and then uh, and then Alex, if you have anything to say. Um, yeah. Actually, the first, the initially, like there was a third Alex um, as part of Steve's lab, so it was very, very. It would have made that podcast incredibly confusing. Um, so yeah, I guess so. Volume, which um, which we 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 call volume, is a virtual reality software for single molecule localization microscopy. Um, as Steve said, initially we started with an ambition to uh, you know transform the way that this kind of data was was visualized and uh, very you know kind of very quickly we realized that it was a lot more uh, than uh, useful than just uh, visualizing the data which is inherently three-dimensional uh, using virtual reality um, and as part of the paper and this is what Alex and I have uh, pursued as part of a, of, a, of a business we basically identified the three kind of like main areas of our software as being um, you know, the ability to offer an entirely new perspective of the data through visualization, uh, you know, very powerful and, and precise like segmentation, and finally being able to analyze the data uh, in real time. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the software. It's very exciting. Can you weigh in a little, Alex? Spark? I think, um... Something really alluring about it all was, um, especially for myself and Alex, is not only do we both adore science quite deeply, um, but uh, we also have quite a strong, so like, I mean, Alex has a, a background in engineering, like aeronautical engineering, and I have a background in basically making um, game engines and uh, making games themselves and just like heavy software programming. 
and it's the technical challenges that we're facing. Um, basically, how do we get all of this data real time in front of the scientists where they can just manipulate it, not have to worry about programming, not have to worry about a whole plethora of problems that you usually would where you'd have to go into different software packages, like manipulate all this data in order to make in order to make it just do something simple. You know, and because this is such a new like um super res is such a new um idea and discovery we thought this is like the perfect time to basically seize this um and set the standard for basically how these scientists are basically going to interact with this three-dimensional data and just can you comment just a little bit on super res to the lay you know the, the audience that's not uh, in that realm Yep, certainly that, that's one for me, I think. So, so super-resolution microscopy is, a, is, a, is an advanced microscopy method that was, has been developed probably over about the last 20 years. Um, uh, but it was actually awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2014. Mm -hmm. So it's a relatively new discovery. It's right on the cutting edge. And what it really is, is it's a, it's a way of being able to make microscopes see about 10 to 100 times uh, better, clearer. So, so the problem is, is if you imagine just taking a microscope like you might have had at school or uh, at college and, and just magnifying an image and magnifying and magnifying and magnifying, you imagine putting a magnifying glass in front of, a, of, of another one. At some point when you're trying to look at something, the, uh, the, the image remains blurry. And that's not because of a failure of your engineer to build a good microscope. It remains blurry because of physics, that light actually diffracts at a certain spatial frequency. So basically you can't see something. And, and, and that, that, that number, which that threshold um, that you can't see below is called the Abbe diffraction limit, discovered by a German uh, optical physicist called Ernst Abbe. And so basically for, for, for about 300 years, from the late 1600s all the way uh, up to um, about the the, uh, the the late the late 80s, people thought this was a fundamental limit in in physics. You could not break it, you know. Um, and uh, and what the that number for optical wavelengths for, for for microscopes that we're all familiar with is about 250 nanometers, 250 billionths of a meter, which might sound very small. But actually on the scale of your body and on the scale of uh, your cells and on the scale of your proteins within your body, it's actually quite large. So, so it's, kind of, it's kind of trying to see uh, an analogy we might be trying to, trying to read a, a newspaper from space. You know, you can't, <laughs> there's some point you just can't see, can't read the text because the size of the text is too small and the size of your telescope is too small, you know. And, and so what SuperRes did was be able to allow you to be, to be able to, using a clever trick of physics and, you know, essentially, you know, uh, physicists and, and uh, chemists, you know, working on the fundamental interactions of, of, of light with matter uh, enabled us to break this, this, what was thought a barrier, to be able to peer uh, through 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 our microscopes now with a with a with a through a window which is which is which is much higher resolution and much higher detail and actually it's a we're in the in the midst of a bit of a uh, optical imaging revolution now where people are actually being able to just uh, examine their uh, data at a higher spatial precision and one that's much more compatible with biological phenomena particularly cells and proteins as I said. And so, uh, just as sort of a, an aside, so how how much of um, an improvement is this technology over, say, visualization using a confocal microscope? 
Yeah, so, so Concord von Krosky is basically the last innovation prior to super resolution, mm -hmm. which was, uh, you know, uh, other than that, uh, and actually one might argue that's the inclusion of a single optical element, you know, 300 years of development, we put one thing in the way of our detectors. <laughs> um, uh, and now, and, and so you're getting at least an, uh, an order of magnitude and nearly, and depending upon, you know, which particular uh, type of super resolution, microscopy you use two orders of magnitude about a hundred fold certainly 20 to 50 fold routinely now better spatial resolution so we can get spatial resolutions now on the order of five nanometers which is approaching the the uh, physical size of an individual protein uh whereas before it was 250 nanometers uh, you know so so you know it was it was it was far far much larger um so so we, so it's really um you know 20 20 to 50 times really if you, and if you imagine something else in, in your in your life, if you imagine your your the resolution on your smartphone got a hundred times more dense, think about how how much more rich your uh, smartphone in, uh, pictures would be. It's exactly the same thing. In fact, now people are discovering new biological phenomena because of the uh, the increase in resolution. In fact, we can we can show you shortly. We have a nice um, image taken from Christophe Leterrier's lab, where he was looking at spectrin, which is a, which is a protein superstructure which associates to axons in, in neurons in your brain. Now, it forms these rings, these beautiful um, spatially um, repetitive rings, and that just wasn't known. That's a completely new discovery, and that was completed a few years ago by Zhao Zhuang's lab, where they we could literally, just by looking, because, because the, the, the spacing between these, these large rings that form were just smaller than the diffraction limit. So they've just never been seen before up until the point at which we can start to visualize them with super resolution microscopy. It's fantastic. It's really, really impressive. Did you have to fix these cells? How did you prepare them for before the um, visualization even happened? Yeah, so these cells are predominantly the, the nearly all of these are fixed. So these are plated neurons, I believe, that are, they're fixed. Uh, to actually yeah. take, to, 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 to break the diffraction limit to be able to do super resolution imaging, the, the trick that one has to play off to avoid violating um, uh, the uncertainty principle is to trade off spatial information for temporal inf information. So what you're actually doing here is it takes a while to acquire these images, typically on the order of you know minutes to hours. So what we're not doing here is seeing a kind of live set, a live reproduction of living cells. That is certainly something we'd love to do and we are working towards. Um, certainly, uh, certainly the, the, the software here, uh, Volume, will be capable of doing it once we once we get, out, you know, once we go back in the lab and work really, work really hard to be able to do that. And we have certainly some ideas about how to do that. So that's certainly a, a wet place we want to go into the future. But these are kind of static three-dimensional images of, in this case, a neuron, but also the, 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 the T-cell uh, membrane that, that, that Alex was just showing. It's fantastic. It's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, maybe I could just give a bit of a scientist perspective here. So, you know, we generate these data and actually the the output of a super resolution microscope is not a um, is a picture as you might think of a standard microscope what it actually outputs is a text file a space a, a list of the spatial position of individual fluorophores and then what that what the software is doing here is rendering the positions of those fluorophores for you to be able to you know in your brain interpret that as a three-dimensional image now um, you might just say, okay, well, that's just, you could just plot that, you know, it's just a three-dimensional plot is what it is. And you're absolutely right. You could do, 
but um, when when you what we've what we found actually what's been so wonderful co collaborating with 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 Alex and Alex on this project is that what this allows researchers to do is really explore their data in an extremely intuitive way. So first off, that biology occurs in three dimensions, even though that the vast majority of microscopy images is two dimensions. So, so your confocal microscope might take a three dimensional picture, um, uh, but, but probably, which is itself a series of one dimensional pictures and it maps together. This is actually taking a 3D picture and rendering it. It allows us to explore that data and really try and see it from different perspectives. And that kind of immersive nature of virtual reality and the ability to see it from different angles uh one first off does a, a variety of things one of them it allows you to examine the data to make sure it's of high quality uh, it allows you to segment specific areas of that data to be able to make sure that one uh, and perform quantitative analysis on various areas of it to make sure that one is one area is, is similar quality to a different area um and also uh, what we've really found is it just more importantly it's really allowed us just to communicate our discoveries back to our collaborators and to other people in quite a timely manner and quite an efficient manner. And actually these three dimensional data sets that we have, it's very difficult to take a 2D picture and, and really, get the, really get the intricacies of what, what you're we're actually viewing. And VR, I think, does provide a unique opportunity. What we did find uh, was that literally everybody, all of my graduate students who have been developing, who've been taking these kind of data, when they were first examine their own data that they're very familiar with in virtual reality, nearly all of them were blown away and saw something new that they hadn't seen before, even though they were really familiar with looking at that particular data set. So it's really, you know, you think, okay, it's just, you know, you're just visualizing the data in an easy way, but that itself has scientific merit because it allows us to reject hypotheses quickly. It allows us to create hypotheses and it allows them to test them and share them with our collaborators. Yeah, the shareable um, functionality is, is, is really interesting. And the fact that even right now during this pandemic, people are very digitally connected. This offers another tool where you could, you know, really in real time share something of interest and, and possibly, you know, one scientist, you know, looking uh, or two different scientists from different disciplines looking at one sample might have you know, glean different um, information from it. So it's it's really fantastic. I think. Um, I wondered if you could discuss some other applications for the VLoom technology, and you know, maybe even talk a little bit about how type one diabetes researchers might use this technology. Uh, yeah, I mean, sorry. I think like for the for the type one diabetes, maybe that's um, you know something that that Steve can address. Um, I think for us in terms of like the actual application, you know, the, the data we can load that as Steve said is is you know localization. So it, basically if it's a CSV file as you can see all of these uh, data sets of CSV files, uh, then it can be it can be loaded in. And I think like this is very exciting for uh, you know uh, helping scientists be be inside the nanoscale, you know, and, and analyze their data in a much more you know fluid way. Yeah, I just wanted to weigh in a bit because while Alex is doing that, I thought it might be um, pertinent to point out in terms of um, other areas to explore here, what we found out, we were a bit stuck in the mud um, in, in the early days for, you know, why why is this better? What is the focus here, right? And I think um, later on it came to us that it was a threefold. 
it was not just the visualization, but it was also the segmentation and the analysis. So with those three things coupled together, we could um, really hit on a new way to basically not only look at our data, so analyze it visually, but then go ahead and you know precisely target and ask questions to the data um, the way that we humanly would. So this goes back to you know we don't have to bother programming anymore and things like that. And I'll give a specific scientific example of how that of what access is true. So, so one of the things we're interested in in our lab is the molecular origin of adaptive immunity. And so this is kind of slightly higher order question than specifically focused towards diabetes, but it is extremely relevant. Yes, you know, so how 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 the T cell is triggered. It's possibly one of the most um, controversial questions in all of immunology at the moment. It's not really That's understood. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so what we've been working on, and, and part of the reason I would argue for that is that the, you know, some beautiful work by, um, uh, by uh, uh, Jay Groves' lab a few years ago showed that the, the phosphorylation state of the TCR, the receptor on the surface of your immune cells that decides whether uh, uh, your, your body is infected or not, uh, the, the, um, the addition of a single phosphate group to one subcomponent of that, actually it's between one and two, but you know, it, it can be responsible for an entire immune response. So what that really tells you is that, you know, you have, you have hundreds of, you know, you know, you have millions of immune cells and on the surface you have about a hundred thousand TCR molecules in every single one of your immune cell and the state of one of those can completely determine your fate. So your body's extremely sensitive to be able to, it's an incredibly complicated system of protein homeostasis and also protein signaling. Um, now, one of the hypotheses at the moment is that the, the, the membrane, the topology of the, of the membrane surface of T cells um, controls where these receptors go. So if you look at this picture that Alex is exploring at the moment, there are some areas that have these pseudopodia, these little finger-like protrusions that stick out. And there's a big debate at the moment between people that are trying to understand the, the fundamentals of T-cell triggering to say that are, is there more or less uh, individual uh, receptors localized in the pseudopodia or in high areas of membrane curvature or in these local ruffles. And if you look at the T-cell the as Alex is exploring it at the moment, you can see there are areas of, of, of large uh, curvature. There's areas of very tight curvature. There are these little pseudopodia. Um, so the basic way of doing this is to be able to look at the cells, partition them into cell body, into these cell ruffles, into these pseudopodia. And then what we want to do is do a second color in this particular case. This particular data set doesn't have a second color, but to determine where the T cell, the T TCR, the T cell receptors are in the context of this shape. Right. So, you know, where, where are they on the membrane? Mm -hmm. Are they all in the tips or are they in these ruffles or are they on the cell body? Um, and just simply by, so what that involves is seeing these cells, looking at the shapes, looking and then trying to correlate the position of the T cell receptor. Now, what we found is that there's huge variation in the shapes of the T cells, right? As you'd expect, they're constantly yeah. moving and changing shape. And actually what it's quite difficult to do, or just quite difficult to write some software to do, is to be able to come in and to be able to say, right, what I want you to do is look at a generic cell and, for, and, and via some metrics say which areas of these are pseudopodia and which areas of these are kind of bulk cell body. It's actually really hard, but it's something your brain intuitively does very easily. And when I'm talking about the shapes and ruffles, if I ask you to say where on this cell is there a, is there a protrusion, you see it straight away. So, so what we're finding in these, in these relatively low volume, high value data sets 
the ability to go in and just pull out regions of the membrane, which is exactly what Alex is showing you can do here, and then run a quantitative analysis metric, you know, are, are, is there more, what's the density, for the sake of argument, what's the density of, of, of T cell receptors in this local region of high membrane curvature is, um, is, is not understood, but actually might be completely fundamental to the, to, the, to the function of the T cells. What we've found so far, I mean, this is unpublished data, this is literally, you know, we're working on it at the moment, is that it appears not to. The, the, it appears that there's a relative uniform distribution across the whole of the membrane and it doesn't form these local areas of clustering and it doesn't really spatially partition. And that goes against some other data that other labs have found around the world. So, so we're really at this point of really trying to, by basically just looking at it, we're really answering fundamental questions of immunology, yeah. which have profound impact upon the uh, diabetes, for instance, but also all the autoimmune diseases. Because when your body gets this wrong, this is when you start to get, you know, a variety of autoimmune diseases, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes as well. Lupus, um, MS. And, and Are you going to be able to get down to the re resolution uh, of constituents of the TCR, of the T-cell receptors, such as like the FC, the FB, the CDR, those types of, the pieces of the T-cell receptor? Um, so we'd absolutely love to. So, so what we, what we, so the answer is kind of yes and no. The spatial resolution of these techniques is not as high as the physical size of the, so the T cell receptor is a, you know, assembly of different proteins. Uh, it's a complex is on the scale of a few nanometers, you know, one right. to three or four nanometers. And that's right at the moment, that's right at the limit of what we're capable of seeing optically. Um, but, it, but it's certainly resolvable via traditional structural biology techniques, you know, crystallography, you know, uh, a cryo EM, these kind of techniques, electron microscopy. Um, so, but what we are, what we can do, um, which, which is much harder, is we can tag those, the, the subcomponents of the, of the, of the T cell receptor and see, are they all distributed randomly? Are they, are, are they, are they clustered? Are some of the subcomponents clustered where some of the others aren't? That type of question we can, absolutely can do and, and are currently doing. Um, but to be, to, for every single receptor to go in and say, where is one versus the other, that's a bit harder. Um, uh, that, that's certainly something we're interested in, but we're not quite there yet, although we've got some ideas of how to get there. This is fabulous. If a researcher, is, you know, we're interested in type 1 diabetes researchers or related research, if someone wanted to use this technology, how would they go about doing that? How do they get in touch with you and, and make a connection? So I think there's there's a couple of ways. I mean, there's um, uh, we have a website which is uh, .com, uh and there's like a little uh, just a um, a contact form, and if you if you fill it out, like we'll be able to to get in touch with you straight away. Um, and the other option is um, so there's a paper, obviously, and 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 this way we can um, um, basically get in, get in touch that way and. And we'll get back to you as well. Um, was the question slightly different, Monica? Was the question, how, what do you need to be able to play with this, you know, to actually use it within your own labs? Is that what you meant? Yes. Well, yes. How do you get in touch? And then, you know, what are the next steps, basically, for a yeah. researcher to interface with this? So, yeah, can you answer that part too? So, so the data we can load in is, is localization. So it's uh, point cloud. So as long as the you know the data can be in that form. So if it's been like a, you know from confocal microscopy and it's like you know tracks um, or uh, directly from a single molecule, uh, then the data is compatible. Um, and so 
Um, then we also have plans and, and like importing different types of data as well. Um, but that's coming. Yeah. So, so could so someone I, I think reach out and say, hey, we have these cells, we'd love to collaborate with you. Would you be up for that? Or is this, uh, do you want them to give you the hard data from their work first? No, no, I mean, ideally we would want to uh, provide the software to them. Um, so for them to, you know, do and use it and, um, you know, get the most out of it. Because we know it's, it's a very powerful tool and, and spatial computing is the, is the next paradigm in terms of, or, you know, the future of, of um, uh, computing and communication and collaboration the future of science is very much around interdisciplinary research. Um, so we really believe in, in this and, and the benefits that it can bring. So, um, yeah. And maybe I just say it from another way, Monica, if, if anyone, if there's any kind of biological researchers who are actively, you know, interested in this, first thing I would say is uh, speak to their microscopy facility and ask whether they have a super resolution microscope. Uh, these are commercialized now, the vast majority of, uh, of um, uh, imaging facilities would have access to some kind of uh, super resolution microscope, I would say. Um, uh, now, if not, there's certainly one near them. The data of which, which should be accessible, almost certainly can be imported into into volume and to be and to be analysed in exactly the same way you've been looking here. So, so if anyone's watching this video and would love to see that play with their own data in this way, that's perfectly possible. Uh, what one needs is the software. They need a VR headset um, and the computer associated with that um, uh, um, uh, and, uh, and, and the data off of, uh, of any super resolution, localization based super resolution microscope. Fantastic. Thank you all so much. Uh, Alex, Alex and Stephen, you have been, I mean, this is revolutionary. I mean, this is, and, and you've been so kind to share it with us and we're hoping to promote it out to all the researchers we are in contact with because I think that this is a really, I think you're at the beginning of something just huge and, and it's a great tool. And um, I think it could, it could really, you know, provide a lot of new insight into T cells as, as beta cells, many cells. So thank you so much for, for sharing your time and, and showing us a demo today. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks a lot for inviting us.